Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, guys, um, thanks. Yeah, my name's John, John Barnsley. I'm a pharmacist. Um, I've spent the last 10 or 15 years in uh, supply chain where I've been managing small to medium-sized uh, businesses in terms of uh, GMP manufacture, um, GDP distribution throughout the UK, and some niche procurement um, incoming and outgoing from the UK to other parts of the world. Um, but specifically, it's been in the unlicensed space, unlicensed medicines, and that's uh, the career experience uh, I want to uh, share with you. It's a personal perspective, so uh, uh, obviously these are, these are my opinions rather than any of uh, any legal body. Um, now, what I want to talk about in terms of that experience is a, a little bit about the legislation, which is uh, fundamental principles are shared throughout the world, but obviously there's some territory specificity. Um, some of the responsibilities with respect to prescribing, the constraints around that and manufacturing, um, the responsibilities of pharmacists in, in terms of dispensing and record keeping. Um, uh, and then I want to touch on some of the concerns and some of the issues that we come across sometimes in terms of patient-directed supplies. Um, and then uh, I want to propose one or two uh, uh, things that we've done, which we describe as managed access solutions, which have worked very successfully here in the UK, and perhaps you might consider reproducing in other territories elsewhere around the world. So, well, essentially the world is full of people. There's at least seven billion and counting. Um, folk that need all sorts of support with varied disorders and diseases. Um, and we've not done too bad over the last thousand years looking towards therapies, uh, and, and we've pretty much figured out which berries not to eat. Um, but the last few hundred years have led to an explosion in science, a development in chemistry and, and various diagnostic techniques, etc., which means that whilst we've still got a therapy approach to it, um, uh, we've, we've got much more within an arsenal to deal with. And uh, typically when we get it right, we've done very, very well, but sometimes when we get it wrong... Um, we get it very badly wrong. And I've highlighted just a couple of examples I want to just briefly touch on to give us a bit of a framework as to why we need regulation and we need to have certain degrees of control uh, around the way that we manage therapies. And the first is this chap. Um, this is Jim. Jim was a magnificent beast, a, a retired milk horse who um, spent his latter years being injected with diphtheria toxin and generating antibodies in his serum, which were harvested uh, to generate an inoculation. Remember, diphtheria was a huge killer of children back in the day, and uh, Jim undoubtedly saved hundreds, perhaps even thousands of lives uh, during his career. But sadly, one day, uh, Jim contracted tetanus and had to be euthanized, um, which was a tragedy enough in and of itself, apart from the fact that uh, uh, they discovered that Jim had actually been uh, suffering from tetanus for a little while longer before the diagnosis, and they'd continued to harvest the serum. Um, and distribute it, and consequently uh, inoculations were provided to uh, quite a few children. Several of them became very ill, and several of them did die. And this was a catalyst for one of the first conversations about, uh, really, we know we're trying to create these biological uh, products to, to present as therapies, but perhaps we need to have a think about uh, what we could have done better at the time. It would have been uh, sufficient techniques for them to be able to determine that tetanus was in the actual um, uh, inoculations that had been created from the serum, um, but unfortunately this wasn't done. And this was one of the first conversations they had about uh, what was eventually to become the FDA in the U.S., uh, not too long later, these chaps were a small pharmaceutical company who were uh, deciding to uh, uh, create a, an antibiotic elixir, um, uh, sulfonilamide, and they were really 
really pleased with themselves in that they've got a really good formulation with diethylene glycol, even though everybody was, uh, uh, there was growing evidence that this was toxic to humans. And uh, uh, sadly, they proceeded with the formulation, distributed it, uh, and again, reports started to come in of deaths associated with consumption of, these, uh, of this elixir. Um, and so uh, this was complicated by the fact that there wasn't really any determined recall procedure. There weren't batch traceability uh, in the way that we require today. And, and uh, sadly, the tragedy, uh, again, led to a number of deaths, which uh, meant that uh, it was another call for uh, protection of the population, some degree of regulation and control over the provision of therapies. So we're still back in the day when really there was no regulation whatsoever. And then lastly, I don't really need to expand upon uh, the, the tragedy or the catastrophe that thalidomide was, uh, the only good thing to come out of it, perhaps, uh, the fact that Angus came across the, uh, the molecule and uh, has done great things with the derivatives. Um, so I think there was a consensus of opinion across the world, universally, really, that we needed to have some degree of control, and control that uh, should extend not just to clinical safety and efficacy of these therapies, but also perhaps to uh, the way that they are prescribed, who's able to make them available to patients, and then how they are manufactured, how they are distributed. In fact, the whole of the supply chain that, uh, that constitutes making the provision of medicines to patients ought to be considered uh, and, and controlled by some degree of regulation. But who's going to do it? Because the next problem you've got is the world is also full of countries. And so whilst there was this consensus of opinion that uh, we all needed to take responsibility for our respective populations, and the fundamental principles of control were agreed on, um, each state had its own responsible parties, which we now describe as competent authorities. Um, and there's a huge appetite for harmonization across all of those territories in terms of the legislation so that the fundamental principles are the same wherever you go. There are some cultural variations from time to time, but um, increasingly we will have harmonization of regulations and controls across the world. Um, we've done rather well in terms of cooperating through Europe, um, uh, and long may this continue after, uh, after Brexit, whatever's going to happen there. Um, but certainly, uh, with, with the establishment of, of licenses across Europe, uh, the EMEA has done a good collaborative job there. But there is going to be harmonization. So my experience is clearly within Europe and within the UK, so uh, some of this may, uh, the fundamental principles will be the same to those that are listening from the US, but um, I wanted to focus on some of those, the, those legislations and, and how we end up in a situation where we are using unlicensed medicine generally. Well, if we look at European legislation, um, Around about 1968, the Medicines Act was introduced, which has been progressively developed to around uh, the, the current version, 2012, with its amendments. Uh, and effectively, if you read the legislation, it indicates that no medicine shall be made available to any patient within any of the member states unless it's been afforded a product license, or what we currently call uh, a marketing authorization. Well, that can't be the case because we're all here today because there are certain individuals who are receiving unlicensed therapies. So how is that? And it's because um, there's a derogation or amendment in that legislation, um, and I've highlighted the, uh, the actual piece of law there, um, and I can signpost you to this specific legislation if you need it, after, uh, if you come after me in the break. Um, but essentially, this is the piece of law, and I'm not going to read through it because it's there for you to read yourselves. Um, but effectively, this is interpreted in different ways in the different European states, but... Uh, the principle is that uh, a member state can afford the autonomy to a physician within the territory 
um, to prescribe a medicine for which there is no license, insofar as that physician is uh, doing so because they have a patient who has unmet needs that they want to satisfy. And so the key element of that legislation is this fulfilling special needs. And that's something that uh, we need to discuss very carefully when we are talking about uh, physicians prescribing unlicensed medicines. Now, the majority of my experience with respect to uh, the provision of unlicensed medicines is in the space of primary care. So we're not really talking about clinical trial environments or secondary care uh, studies. We are talking about general practitioners in communities making decisions about prescribing unlicensed medicines. Uh, the principle is key, um, but what I wanted to use this presentation, um, given the growth in prescribing, was to remind all of those involved in that supply chain of what their responsibilities will be when prescribing those unlicensed medicines. So let's have a look at the GMC guidance, the General Medical Council's guidance, which describes those circumstances where prescribing an unlicensed medicine uh, may be considered appropriate by a physician with the UK. Well, the first principle is that, well, there is no license for, for the medicine that you want to use. So by definition, obviously, um, uh, the, there is nothing that's going to suit the patient's needs that is licensed at the time. But then more frequently, there are licensed dosage forms, um, but those licensed dosage forms wouldn't meet the specific needs of your patient. Um, and so you see this in pediatrics all the time. Pharma companies market solid dose forms when, in fact, there are patients that need solutions, et cetera. And so we have compounding and dispensing, et cetera, and to, to actually manage that requirement. Uh, and then the third circumstance might be where there are national shortages of a particular product that's licensed in the UK, um, and so international versions of that product are brought in uh, to support those shortages. But approved research projects tend to be um, circumstances which are governed by further regulation, which is in terms of IMP and clinical trials organizations, et cetera, rather than the general legislation that supports unlicensed prescribing in the primary care setting. And that's where I'm focusing upon uh, the, the, the varied behaviors that we need to try and control. So the GMC guidance says, okay, so you're a physician, you've identified a patient with a special need. Um, essentially, you must, if you're going to be doing so, be satisfied that there's sufficient evidence or experience of using the medicine to demonstrate its safety and efficacy. Um, so uh, clearly we're in a position where if this is totally novel chemistry that there is no experience of, it wouldn't be possible for a physician in terms of general practice to be able to satisfy them uh, themselves with the sufficient evidence. So it, it kind of frames the kind of unlicensed medicines that we're talking about in primary care practice. Um, but it's important that uh, you have environments such as this where you can share best practice and experience so that you could build your evidence essentially from your peers with respect to uh, the use of an unlicensed medicine in, in, in physical practice. And then in terms of taking responsibility for prescribing, it's important that uh, this isn't an event which is one-off and you don't see the patient again. Uh, there's a specific responsibility with respect to prescribing unlicensed medicine, particularly from a UK perspective, where you make arrangements for follow-up, for monitoring, et cetera, in a way that perhaps sometimes you wouldn't if it was standard licensed therapies that were being prescribed. And then... The record keeping is something that's particularly important and stressed by the regulator that um, not only do you need to record what you've prescribed, which you would do in any event, but there is a requirement to record your justifications in terms of prescribing the unlicensed medicine. So specifically, what special needs are you, are, are you coming across that you're intending to prescribe for? And it's important that you record that within the notes. 
And then there's another repeal that uh, essentially decision, decisions should be made in collaboration with patients. So uh, the patient is aware of the fact that it's an unlicensed medicine that they're going to be using. And that conversation should be taking place to ensure that the principle of con consent is complied with. Um, and so really that's the GMC guidance. And uh, physicians within the UK, particularly in primary care, uh, have been of an opinion at times that there's an increased liability uh, if you're prescribing an unlicensed medicine. Well, the fact is that there might be an increased responsibility, but in terms of patient treatment, uh, that's exactly the same in terms of your liability. And there was some uh, uh, blog that I isolated here from, uh, from the, uh, uh, the GMC website, which again, I can signpost you to, um, which talks specifically about the responsibilities that, that physicians in the UK take. And then indicates quite clearly that contrary to recent, recent suggestions, the GMC guidance does not indicate extra personal liability, even though there will be increased responsibilities. But there is a shared responsibility upon all of the people that are dealing with it. So what sort of medicines are we talking about? Well, um, if we have a look at the, the segment that I've been engaged in, the first piece of this pie is in, in terms of extemporaneous preparations. So these are, um, there might be two different licensed creams and they're mixed in a specific ratio that a dermatologist wants, for example. Um, and by definition, each is licensed individually, but when they uh, are together, there's no way that the behavior of that mixture has actually been, um, been assessed by uh, an independent adjudicator. So consequently, they're by definition unlicensed. But the largest piece of the pie are these uh, alternative presentations of the licensed therapy. So solid dose forms that are crushed and made into solutions, or uh, there might be other things that we're turning into lollipops or into suppositories or however. The typical kind of compounding of product that's readily available as a licensed therapy is a solid dose form, so it's been amended. And then there's another uh, growing part of this uh, pie, which is in terms of products that are licensed in one country, but not in another, for one reason or another. Um, and you might find with a growing global physician that uh, they want to try treatments for a particular patient having gone to an international conference, and consequently, there are mechanisms within each of the member states for uh, specialist niche providers to be able to pull product from territories where it's licensed into territories where it's not licensed on a named patient basis. Um, so that's another piece of it. And then there's a, a, another rounding up, which is things that by definition couldn't really be licensed because they're personalized for specific patients. So they might be uh, TPM presentations, for example, or bags made up for specific patients. But to give you some perspective, uh, the, the whole of this constitutes only about 1% of prescribing or, or prescriptions in the UK by volume. So it's a very small, but an extremely invaluable segment with respect to patients. Um, Another element is the fact that it comprises around about 80,000 different formulations and presentations of these different products. So it's a very large sector. There's all sorts of unlicensed prescribing that goes on in terms of primary care. It's very closely controlled. So we've talked about the fact that we've got a physician and they've identified a patient who's got a, a special need for which they want to prescribe an unlicensed medicine. And then uh, there's another safeguard for in terms of regulations, which is the responsibilities of pharmacists um, in, in terms of them dispensing those or, or being faced with, uh, with a prescription for an unlicensed uh, medicine in the UK. And uh, the key obligation that they have is to ensure that wherever possible a licensed product is dispensed, it's a key principle of dispensing practice in the UK, that they have to use a valid MA when they're uh, responding to any prescription. And they do that in accordance with this hierarchy of need, which I've extracted from the MHRA's website. So clearly, the highest choice, the, the, the lowest risk is a licensed medicine. 
and then at the bottom is a product that's not been made in this territory, that isn't licensed in the territory where it was made, and isn't made to a pharmaceutical standard either. Um, and so that will be the last choice that the pharmacy should make, uh, and because it comprises the highest risk from a regulator's perspective. And then the other thing to be conscious of is the fact that pharmacists can't just prepare stuff and then start to make them available to patients. It's got to be in response to unsolicited orders. Um, and that's back in the days when pharmacists used to make nostrums, et cetera, and, and present things almost retail to, to, to patients. Now, there's a safeguard in terms of pharmacist responsibilities again here in that if a pharmacist is going to be dispensing unlicensed medicine, then it's essential that they ensure the physician is aware that it's unlicensed. So it's making sure that everybody's aware of what they're dealing with in terms of this UK prescription. Um, and then once they're doing that, then they can also make sure that they're preparing it in accordance with the physician's actual prescription. So these are the GPHC's responsibilities in terms of preparing these various therapies. Um, and gone are the days when you used to have a, 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 a prescription resembled a, a recipe almost. The relationship that physicians prescribing have with their compounding pharmacy is absolutely essential um, because it, it, they'll just be the active ingredients that will be typically described. So the pharmacist is left with a degree of control over, well, how am I going to compound this? What am I going to do with it? So it's important that there's a relationship between the prescriber and the pharmacist, which enables them to be able to collaborate over what that should look like and what the outcome should be specifically in terms of what's presented to the patient. Um, a further safeguard is that the pharmacist is also expected to make the patient aware if they weren't and there hasn't been this principle of consent uh, that it's an unlicensed medicine. And they do that without compromising the relationship with the physician, but part of the thing that must encourage is the reporting of ADRs. And it's interesting, I think there's a poster um, that's uh, being presented today uh, around ADIs, ADRs, and we worked up a protocol of how to develop such a, a standard operating procedure around that as well. So it's interesting that that's coming up as the prescribing becomes more widespread. So we've had a look at a physician with a patient in compliance with the legislation prescribing an unlicensed medicine because they've got a patient with an unfilled need, and we've had a look at the portfolio of products that they can actually prescribe. When the pharmacist has that prescription, they've then got a decision as to how they procure it. Now, there are slight differences in terms of the provision of products in the US to the way that we provide them in the UK, and I'll touch on that. But historically, both territories used to have a situation where a pharmacy could make anything because they had a plethora of ingredients and compound ingredients and skill sets and, and uh, varied tools, etc., which are now much less frequently used. However, there's still a Section 10 exemption for pharmacists to be able to prepare in any community practice um, in response to an unlicensed prescription. They can prepare it. Um, it doesn't have to be a special pharmacy. It can be just that specific one. But unlike uh, the situation in the US where certain pharmacies decided, well, we're going to specialize in compounding, what happened in the UK was that there was experience that it was so infrequent that either A, the tools weren't available in community practice or um, uh, that they couldn't buy the ingredients that would be satisfactory to actually make a lot of these products or uh, there were just simple errors being made because it's not a frequent dispensing activity anymore. Um, so the MHRA licensed, uh, uh, created a new license effectively, which was that of MS Manufacturer, MS being a, a manufacturer of specials. 
And essentially, the, the way that these organizations work is they're licensed as quality organizations. So uh, they, they don't, unlike a Pharmaco, um, which has a product license and is making things in a particular way, MS Manufacturing in the UK will be licensed as quality organizations. They don't have to report necessarily what they make to the MHRA, although there is a small negative list of what they cannot make. Um, the largest proportion of their activity is that they are being licensed and inspected to prepare things in a particular way and in accordance with uh, some of the mandates that come out into the GMP guide from them. So they're still subject to exactly the same control as a large pharmaco with a, a huge production line, um, but actually they're just being licensed off. Uh, and tell us how you are going to approach developing a formulation. What constraints, how will you label that? How will you release it? How will you manufacture it? How will you manage control, uh, uh, control of uh, of impurities, etc. How will you uh, audit your suppliers? And so they've got much more controls than over a Section 10 provision in the in the UK. Um, but they're still not a pharmaco. But they much more resemble a laboratory rather than um, a, a large pharmaco or a pharmacy. So, having said that, the the MS manufacturer then will present a product, and there's two ways you can either make something that you've made for that specific patient, in which case you would issue that with what we'd call a certificate of conformity. So this is a, 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 a document which says, well, this that I've just made for Bessie is exactly what it's supposed to be, and I've made it in this particular way, et cetera. But you can't really do any more analysis of the product that you've made um, because you wouldn't have any left to give to the patient. So the key element is that uh, a certificate of conformity is the only really document that you can actually present with that for the purposes of, 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 of giving to a patient. Whereas if you take a different approach and you say, rather than just making this one at a time, because I'm being asked to do it quite a lot, I'm going to actually make a whole batch of them, then what you can do is you can secure some of that product from that batch and subject it to all sorts of tests and stick it in a microwave, uh, uh, test it in extremes of heat or cold. and you, you can subject it to laboratory analysis, which means that you're able to attribute characteristics of the remainder of that batch, which you haven't distributed and retained for the testing. And that C of A is what we're trying to aspire to in terms of getting to something which is a consistent product, which is the same every time, with characteristics that we can demonstrate by that C of A. Uh, and that's where a batch manufactured product is better, because you can start to um, attribute shelf lives to it, which mean that you can then have a portable product that you can distribute. And at the end of the day, that's what we want. So. Uh, we've still made this, but it's an MS manufacturer that's been licensed to make this, uh, to, to present to the particular patients, but it's still an unlicensed medicine. So even though we look like a pharmaco and we've got a, a finished product, the principle is by definition that it still hasn't been subject to the scrutiny and the level of scrutiny that you'd expect of a licensed product um, in order to gain approval. So by definition, it cannot have a marketing authorization, so it cannot be promoted to a physician. We can't have reps in the road going out and discussing various therapies, et cetera, with physicians. It cannot be promoted. It is in the unlicensed medicine without marketing authorization. So what records need to be kept in terms of compliant dispensing? Well, our regulations indicate that in the circumstances of applying, you've got to retain for at least five years some records, some significant records. And these should include obvious things. Uh, where did you get this product from that you gave to the patient? Um, which patient did you give it to them? And when did you give it to them, et cetera? And exactly what was given? What records are retained in that respect? Um, was there any batch detail? What certification is actually associated with this? Um, and then any details of any ADRs which become aware. So there's almost five years there of records that have to be retained for repeat dispensing. 
And the ADR element is a responsibility of everybody that's within that supply chain. Uh, so one trust that we've actually got then, uh, physicians identifying patients compliantly with unmet needs, um, that within the regulations they're prescribing those unlicensed medicines, um, that ultimately they are presenting them to Section 10 dispensing opportunities or perhaps also to, um, uh, to an MS manufacturer, where they've got certification and characteristics of the product, so there's full batch traceability of that product. Um, but ultimately, those are still options because if you've got a patient with a prescription, they can almost go wherever they want to actually have a look for products. Now, from a UK perspective, the regulator of pharmacies is the General Pharmaceutical Council. And it's essential that um, a member of the public who wants to actually have a prescription dispense for an unlicensed medicine uh, or for any prescription um, can check from the General Pharmaceutical Council website whether a pharmacy is registered in the UK. So there's only 15,000 pharmacies in the UK. I'm a pharmacist, but I can't just open a pharmacy and decide I'm going to start dispensing prescriptions. You have to apply uh, to the General Pharmaceutical Council to be able to have a license specifically to do so. Um, and then they'll inspect your, uh, your premises and go through, those, uh, the, those, the, go through the characteristics and the way that you're behaving and then decide whether you're necessary or desirable as a practice for that community. Um, but you can check whether a pharmacy is registered. I've chosen to do that with Stevens as an example, um, King in Glasgow. Um, and yes, he is a real pharmacist, and he does have pharmacies in, in, in Scotland, we discovered. Uh, so, uh, so, so there we are. It just gives you an opportunity. As a patient, if you want to check that your pharmacy's a GPHC pharmacy, is an absolutely key element in terms of where you present your prescription. And the presenting of the prescription is something I want to focus on just a little bit now because uh, this is something that's been a personal interest of mine uh, with respect to patient-directed procurement because we do hear uh, quite a few people saying, well, why do I need to bother with all this? I can get anything I want off the web. And the reality is you can get anything off the web. It might not be what you actually want to do. And it's quite a bit more of a problem than we might think. And so I think that it's important that when we fulfill our responsibilities, and the, there's a mixture of healthcare professionals in the audience today and on live stream, but there are also patients there. I think it's very important that we uh, make sure that patients are procuring the actual medicine that we intend for them to have, and that we've got some encouragement over those reporting with those ADRs and telling us where they're actually buying things. So we're encouraging relationships in closed groups between prescribers, physicians, and patients, which you can see the product at the end of, so you know what they're actually receiving. So I'm going to just introduce a few slides as to why it can be a problem with the web here. And uh, there are some products uh, on these slides, and th th this is not a reflection on those companies at all, um, uh, but essentially the numbers make quite frightening reading. So we're talking about counterfeit across the world. Uh, the internet is driving a lot of it. Criminality is something we have to be obviously very, very conscious of, but um, counterfeit used to be about perhaps product that wasn't where it was supposed to be. So this was counterfeit from a commercial perspective. But we're now talking about falsification, which is even worse. Because falsification is direct criminality. Um, the addition of products without API, products with noxious materials, no controls whatsoever. And, and it's just basically a way of these criminals making money out of people that are ill. Um, now, I'm going to flick through these because it doesn't reflect upon the companies at all, but these are some examples of counterfeit that's been determined. And the reason I'm sharing them with you is to say that they are very good at it. And really, the only defense that we have 
um, in terms of determining what is counterfeit is the supply chain that we're engaged with. And that's why your pharmacist is absolutely key because they're making these procurement decisions. You need to have, the patient has to have the relationship with the pharmacist who's able to make a decision about where is this stuff that's going to go in your bag going to come from. That's up to them. And so that key relationship needs to be reflected back to the physician intending for their patient to have a, a really good presentation. They need to have the pharmacist in the loop so that that can be part of that decision rather than the patients going directly to procure from the web because this is where a lot of the problem comes from. And we're trying to address it. And indeed, um, the, the last time Operation Pangea had a big hit was, uh, was a few years ago. Now, they didn't just do this. I know it's only seven days that the operation took place, but... Um, uh, Pangea was worked up over some months, etc. But you can see that the number of countries involved collectively to try and get rid of these fake medicines uh, was considerable. And you can see that the criminal proceedings, uh, the proceeds that were seized are, are quite significant, let alone the patient misery uh, that was avoided by taking these out of the supply chain. So it's a really, really important part that we mustn't forget about. We mustn't be happy that we've given a prescription to our patient and they've gone home and they're going to receive what we anticipate that they're going to receive. You need to have your pharmacist in the loop specifically with that. Okay. Um, now, how are we going to deal with this in the UK? Uh, we're going to deal with it in the UK with what's called the Falsified Medicines Directive. Uh, and the Falsified Medicines Directive is going to mean that there'll be anti-tamper devices and three different safety features associated with the product. The problem that we've got is that because unlicensed medicines are so typically a one-off, they are exempt from all of these controls. So consequently, unlicensed medicines will not have these safety features that are going to be associated with everything else that we're trying to control in terms of falsification and counterfeit. So it makes us even more of a target. So the most important thing that I try and encourage amongst that team is um, you know, to make sure that we're conscious of the fact that we need to have an end-to-end -end supply chain provision. So the WHO guidance in terms of internet purchases, which I'm directing toward patient audiences here, is that uh, it, it's pretty obvious if the website isn't giving a physical landline or an address, then there's something typically suspicious there. There's an authenticity logo that we've introduced as well throughout Europe, where there's international retail trading on the web, uh, and that's something that you can click through to determine what it is. And I can give you links to all of these things if you need afterwards. Um, but there are some obvious things which will be giveaways. If it's prescription-only medicine, how are they able to give it you without submitting a prescription? How can that happen? And then if it's discounted or it's suspiciously giveaway products, two won't buy two, get one free, that sort of thing, it, it tends to be an issue. So those are the things that they're trying to um, control effectively with the falsified medicines. Fact, it is happening. Um, it's not a horror story. It's, it's just something I, I think that it's important that we're conscious of. And so... One of the things that does work, and I know it works because it works here in the UK, and it would work in the other territories, is a more collaborative approach to it. So, Your time is just about. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Well, I, I can present this very, very quickly then. So these are essentially a managed access model. So the idea is we're going to get all the stakeholders together, and I'll open all of these arms on this wheel. 
We'll get all the stakeholders together who are going to be engaged in this. So the physician and patient and pharmacist should all be working together as a whole. You're sharing the experiences you've got then with, a, with an expanded group of patients, with an expanded group of healthcare professionals. And then the compliance measures that you can then, you can have a consistent product. Everybody's using the same thing. So you're able to get better exploration of those actual things. So effectively, that's what I'd probably uh, propose that we have these managed access solutions in the individual territories. Okay? Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.ldnresearchtrust.org.